Welcome to The Grizzly Beat, a podcast of Grizzly Times and Louisa Wilcox, where we interview scientific experts, managers, Native Americans, writers, and others to share their knowledge, perspectives, and experience. This comes at a time of enormous interest in the grizzly bear's future as the government proposes to remove federal protections and citizens are asking important questions. We hope the information shared here will help listeners shape their own answers. So this is Louisa Wilcox, and you're with Grizzly Times uh, Podcast, and here today with a good friend, George Werthner, who is a writer and a photographer, uh, natural history uh, buff. He's got an advanced degree in range, and he's written like 30 books, travelogues and natural history books, and, and books with titles like Clear Cutting and Thrillcraft, and I'm delighted to have George here today to talk about his experience with bears and, and the wild. I'm happy to be here, Louisa. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. So, George, you've written so much about wildness and large carnivores like grizzlies and wolves. Maybe you can share a story about some experience you had in the wild, you know, with a bear. Is there something that comes to mind? Um, well, actually, I've had a, a, a quite a number of experiences with bears, uh, both black bears and grizzlies. Um, the uh, the the one that's uh, there actually it, it'd be hard to pick which one is is most memorable. But uh, one of the experiences I had uh, was up in uh, Alaska and uh, at Katmai, which has a whole lot of bears. And yeah. uh, I was kayaking around, and um, it was one of these things I, where uh, I got up in the morning from where I was camped on a lake and went down to uh, wash my face off in the water. And uh, so I, I'm splashing water on my face, and I kind of looked down the beach, and coming right at me was a was a bear. And so I splashed huh. more water on my face to make sure that I was <laughs> and then and then moved back from the shoreline. The bear just kind of ambled on by, and uh, uh-huh. you know didn't do anything aggressive or anything like that, which um, seemed to be the experience there. And and at the same time, in kept my another funny thing. I was watching a fisherman uh, fishing the Brooks River, and. Uh, to his back, you didn't see a, a bear came out on shore and looked at him and looked at the salmon on the guy's fishing rod jumping out of the water. And then the bear dove into the water and grabbed uh. the salmon. And so this fisherman has, like, got a, a grizzly on the end of his line, basically. <laughs> and he's, like, panicking, not knowing and he grabs a knife and cuts his line and races for the shore. That was pretty right. hilarious to watch. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Don't mess with, mess with a grizzly bear once you're fish. <laughs> right, that's great. Right. You can have it, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so George, you, you're well aware of this current debate about the protections of grizzlies in Yellowstone, and obviously there are many people concerned about delisting and the issues in court now, uh, six different uh, groups and tribes uh, suing the federal government over removal of protections for the Yellowstone grizzly population. What do you think is the biggest problem with delisting? Well, there, there's a whole bunch of them, but the biggest problem is that the, the bears are not at a population in the Yellowstone area where you can uh, say with certainty that they are going to survive into the future. There's still too few of them, and the bears have unoccupied habitat, particularly uh, <clears throat> the area south of, uh, of Jackson in the Wyoming Range and along the Idaho border, the Caribou Mountains, um, and other uh, palisades, et cetera, these are areas that could support more bears and, and increase the population tremendously. 
and um, and we need a, a larger population there to be certain that the uh, you know we won't have problems with genetic inbreeding or or uh, just a um, you know climate change or something else that may uh, make it more difficult for the population to survive. And we all know that small populations are more likely to go extinct due to stochastic events. And so that's the problem, the biggest problem I see. It's, it's way too premature to be delisting bears. So the issue of state wildlife management comes up in the context of delisting because it's about whether or not the states, uh, when authorized with uh, full responsibility for grizzly bears, can actually keep bears at the levels they are, let alone expand them to the levels that you know, you're articulating that they need. What is the problem with uh, state wildlife management? Well, the state agencies have a conflict of interest when it comes to predators in particular. Um, most people uh, don't realize that states rely on the sale of license uh, and tags uh, to fund their agencies. And so they're under pressure to produce things that can be shot, particularly um, elk and deer, and also if delisted grizzly bears. Uh, and the incentive is to <clears throat> maximize particularly the huntable species and, and opportunities for hunting uh, and, and, and often uh, with the uh, impacts on those animals secondary uh, to providing uh, hunter opportunity. And, and because of that conflict, um, they, uh, they tend to uh, often, uh, uh, in the case of predators, limit the number of predators and the distribution of predators. And in the case of things like elk and deer, often encourage uh, uh, more abundance than perhaps uh, might be a good idea. And uh, as a result of that, they, have, um, they, they tend to ignore science uh, to a degree. And, and I, I want to hasten to say there's often a lot of good biologists that work for these agencies, and they, mm-hmm. they recognize these problems, but they, they have to take the you know, orders from above, and the people above are responding to hunters, and a lot of hunters are just not very well informed about uh, predators. And um, so that they tend to uh, respond to the lowest common denominator in many cases. And, and I just don't see where uh, uh, the state agencies are going to overcome that because the, the constituency they see, even though they're by public trust, they're supposed to be managing wildlife for all citizens they see as their constituency the, the people that are buying the hunting licenses. And um, many of them are, don't really care about, uh, you know, long-term uh, survival of species or enhance, they're more, you know, what's, what can I hunt this year or next year attitude. So. Right. So one of the issues that you've written about is a model called the North American Model for Wildlife Conservation, and, uh, and it's a model that's used by the states. Uh, and you've noted in a number of different things you've written that it, this model itself it codifies the philosophy of state game agencies as a real problem. What, what is the problem, and what do you think the solution is? Well, you know, the, the problem, the biggest problem is they don't actually follow the, the model as written, which says that for one thing, for example, that no wildlife should be wasted. So using mm-hmm. predators, particularly like wolves, uh, or, or even uh, most people that shoot bears are only interested in the hide uh, as a, you know, trophy, um, you're wasting wildlife, and, and that goes against the, the model. 
Uh, the other problem with the uh, model, again, it sort of ties back into the funding that I mentioned earlier in that it tends to emphasize uh, hunting over uh, wildlife conservation principles in general. And, um, and so it, it sort of distorts the, um, the emphasis by these state agencies to, um, uh, to provide huntable uh, opportunities, huntable, you know, <laughs> bullet retardants for bullets out there rather than necessarily uh, for the long-term ecological health of the landscape. So, for example, um, if, if you were to, uh, we could use an example, would be with wolves uh, to, to one degree, uh, wolves will tend to um, uh, limit uh, animals that have disease. So for right now, chronic wasting disease is spreading right. through through the Rockies. And, and uh, the wolves can detect a, an animal that has it much sooner than we can. And, and it probably won't stop the spread, but it might uh, you know, reduce it significantly because they, they nip it in the bud, so to speak. They, they would pick up on an animal that has it earlier than anything else, anybody else. And, and so if you limit the number of wolves, you, you automatically give the advantage to the chronic wasting disease. And, 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 and that is something that, uh, you know, I don't hear uh, fishing game departments, <laughs> uh, you know, giving out as a good reason why they shouldn't be killing wolves. Uh, so right. that's the problem. Right. So, George, you've written a lot on public lands and wilderness and the threats to public lands. Um, and one of the things that you've written on is the explosion of ATVs, off-road vehicles, and snowmobiles now that can scale, you know, cornices in the steepest country, and, and pack rafts. You can carry these rafts on your back and paragliders in the wilderness. And you wrote, even you even wrote a book called Thrillcraft. Why are these crafts, these craft, such a problem? Well, there, there's there's a number of things. There's the uh, uh, the fact that um, we basically have small islands of secure habitat for all these species, like grizzly bears uh, and other wildlife that are sensitive to human intrusions, and the access provided by every new invention that comes along, whether it's uh, you know more uh, high-powered snowmobiles, whether it's uh, uh, you know, mountain bikes that now can practically climb up a cliff. Uh, every technological innovation uh, shrinks the habitat, in effect, because people can travel further, they can get into more remote country than ever before possible. And that puts a stress on, on the animals. Uh, it also makes them vulnerable to things like hunting as well. Uh, but it also puts a stress on the animals that are sensitive to a lot of human intrusions. And the problem for <clears throat> for the wildlife uh, around the West is that our even our biggest areas of, of wildlands are not sufficient in and of themselves, in most outside of Alaska, that is, in and of themselves to sustain uh, viable populations in many cases. And so, uh, we need actually to expand these wildlands. And what the effect of this access is is it shrinks even the ones we have by making them more uh, available to many more people to uh, just to get in. And, and it's not that these people are being, uh, uh, you know, have bad intentions. Uh, they're probably mostly unaware of the impact they're having, but it still is an intrusion. 
So, George, you've also co- you covered a lot of public lands issues, different aspects of it, including livestock grazing, uh, which is an issue that many conservation groups just avoid. What is the problem with livestock grazing uh, here in the West? And, and more broadly, what, what are the threats to carnivores from livestock grazing? Okay, well, livestock grazing is the widest uh, use of public land in the West. Uh, in that more acres are, um, are grazed by domestic livestock than any other uh, activity that we permit on public land. And in livestock, I would say even get into far more uh, places than humans tend to even. Uh, right. And uh, so um, livestock uh, grazing is a privilege on public land. That's, I want to emphasize that. But, but it is, in effect, treated as almost as if it's a right. And uh, agencies like the Forest Service or the BLM that manage uh, uh, grazing on public lands are reluctant to do anything that negatively impacts the uh, ranchers that hold these permits. And part of the reason for that is the livestock industry has a tremendous amount of political power in the West. And often because if you look around at the background of a lot of congressmen and senators, you'll find a significant number of them uh, have contacts or, or ranchers themselves or have contacts with the agricultural industries. So in any event, the, the political uh, situation is, is that uh, livestock raising uh, is, is widespread, and it does a lot of damage in many different ways. Um, let me just articulate a few of them. One, you have uh, water pollution. Uh, you know, they're uh, leaving their droppings and manure uh, all across the landscape in any place that there's a high concentration of livestock, studies have shown that the water quality uh, doesn't meet um, state standards. Uh, and and uh, then there's the um, cropping of forage that would otherwise go into native species. It, you know, there's only X amount of forage out there of high quality. And if a lot of it is going into a cow or a sheep, it's that much less for an elk or a deer or a bighorn. And then there's diseases <clears throat> as uh, um uh, just bighorn sheep is a good example. Domestic sheep um, can transmit uh, a variety of diseases to wild bighorn that uh, cause, uh, in many cases, uh, bighorn populations to collapse. Uh, there's the um, uh, destruction of, of springs and seeps, and, and which are the sources of late-season summer flows, which negatively impacts uh, fisheries because you know, there's less water out there than otherwise would happen. Uh, there's the damage to riparian areas, which are the green vegetation along streams and, and rivers that is the most productive part of the West. Uh, even though they occupy about 1% of the landscape, 70 to 80% of all wildlife species depend on them at some point in their life. So if you damage those riparian areas, you have a significant impact on, on uh, the wildlife. And to give you one example with bears, uh, bears often travel through and forage in uh, repairing areas, particularly in the springtime, uh, so damage to repairing areas, you know, can negatively hurt uh, bears in that way. Uh, another impact is that the livestock uh, being out there, uh, consuming that forage means uh, less uh, na- natural prey for uh, animals like bears and wolves, uh, because if that forage is going to a cow, it's not producing elk or, or, or deer or something like that. And then you have just the animosity that ranchers have towards, um, you know, predators in general. Uh, so um, you have things like, uh, uh, you know, wildlife services that's, uh, you know, killing um, uh, coyotes and, 
wolves and, and bears. And that, um, that conflict and that destruction of our wildlife to favor private businesses operating our public lands is, is a real problem. So we have a situation now around Yellowstone where um, livestock and uh, livestock grazing and grazing practices and hunters, big game hunters, are the two biggest causes of grizzly bear mortality, which is a shift from what it had been a couple decades, which was uh, decades ago, which was garbage. Um, and this has been a real concern in recent years. The last four years, the population is not just not grown, which it hasn't for the last uh, almost 20, but it's dropped because mortality is so serious uh, and so high relative to livestock grazing and hunters. The states are saying no problem. Uh, the population's recovered. Uh, we can afford to, you know, these losses. What would your response be, and what, what would you do about this situation? Well, let me, since we were just talking about livestock, take that first. You know, think about this. The, um, the way that most livestock and public lands is managed is <clears throat> the animals are just set out there and the rancher comes back, uh, you know, several months later and sort of gathers up what's left. And um, uh, so if there's any mortality of cattle uh, or sheep, uh, that becomes an attraction to the uh in the case of grizzly bears, uh, to to the bears, and they're attracted to that area where the livestock is. So it it becomes an unnatural attractant that puts them in conflict, uh, in a sense. I I would say, to make an analogy, it's like putting picnic baskets out there for the the bears to find. And so you have four-legged picnic baskets all over the landscape, and then we kill the bears because they happen to find the picnic baskets. Uh, and uh, and, it, and, the, and the strangeness of it, of course, if anybody's been familiar with some place like Yellowstone, if you leave a picnic basket out on a picnic table and campground for the night, you'll get a fine. But we allow yeah. the livestock industry to put all these four-legged picnic baskets all over the landscape, and there's no consequences to them or incentive for, other than you know, to diminish the losses for them to, uh, to do something differently. So anyway, once once a, a bear or a wolf gets a taste of domestic livestock, it often then uh, you know finds it um, <clears throat> that it, it looks for other opportunities. So um, and and instead of uh, as I would do it, well, if I were king, I'd get rid of all the livestock on public land. But the second next thing I would do is <laughs> if there is a conflict. Uh, I would say you remove the livestock, not remove the bear. In other words, uh, if you're grazing on public lands, that's a privilege. Uh, the public has a right to have the grizzly bears there. It's the only place in many cases that they can be uh, uh, forage and, and, and live safely. And so if, if, for example, there is a depredation, then the cattle or the sheep should be moved, not the bears. And right now the opposite is true. And uh, so... I think that's one of the big problems. Now, with the hunters, uh, we have a similar thing in the sense that, um, uh, you know, of course, uh, gut piles are attracted to bears, and, and a lot of times the, uh, the, what happens uh, is a hunter comes back to where he's killed an elk or, or a deer. Uh, often, particularly if it's late in the day, they won't finish gutting it out, and, mm-hmm. and a bear will find it in the meantime, and then, uh, you know, the hunter comes back and it's surprised, it surprises the bear, and, and then there's a, a lethal confrontation oftentimes because the hunters, of course, usually have a rifle with them. And, uh, right. and so uh, that is another uh, uh, problem, and it's, it's growing in part because 
uh, at least some would suspect because other food opportunities for uh, the grizzlies, particularly in the Yellowstone, have diminished. So we have less cutthroat trout for them. We have less white bark pine cones for them. Uh, and uh, and so the, the bears are focusing more on the, the meat part of their diet and to the degree that they can find it. And uh, these gut piles and, uh, are real attractive to them. And, and it becomes lethal again for the bears. And so um, uh, one of the things, again, with hunters that I would I would say is that all hunters um, should be required to carry bear spray. Uh, bear spray is far less lethal and, uh, and is shown to be effective uh, against bears. And um, just like, you know, it's just like you, you have to kill, keep, keep a clean camp. Uh, if you camp in some place like Yellowstone, you've got to hang your food. And, and then here you are right on the edges of Yellowstone. You're out there hunting and you're leaving all this, you know, meat on the ground. Uh, and uh, and then you know sort of then blaming the bear if there's an attack on a hunter and it's just uh, again putting the emphasis on the uh, the, the, the mortality and, and the and the blame on the bear rather than the humans and we're the ones that are supposed to be smart and we're the ones that <laughs> should be uh, able to uh, uh, mitigate these situations and and reduce the occurrence by our behavior and. And, and again, uh, the agencies that are managing these lands uh, are not, in my view, doing enough to, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a funny thing. You'll, you'll get curved, like I said, about, uh, you know, making sure that your food is hung in, say, Yellowstone Park if you're camping there. Well, why shouldn't that be applied all the way through all the landscapes where there, there's uh, bears? And it shouldn't be just in Yellowstone. And uh, and, and you're encouraged in Yellowstone to, to carry bear spray. And I'm I'm really been surprised to see that difference in the last 20 years or so, where I almost never saw anybody with bear spray. Now, I just don't see. I I was skiing in Yellowstone last week, and uh, and and I met a person on the trail who had bear spray in the middle of winter. So. Uh-huh. You never know when they might wake up and be grumpy about it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, right. I mean, but it's, it's a good thing that they're, they're that conscientious is what I'm getting at, that, yeah, that people right. are, are, at least in Yellowstone, the, the people that are hiking and so forth there are, uh, have really adopted bear spray as one of the ways that they uh, can minimize the, you know, having to kill a bear if there's any kind of a surprise. And one of the things that people miss a lot along the lines of what you're saying is the role of of the parks in recovering grizzly bears to date. I mean, it used to be when the, there was rampant feeding of bears in Yellowstone up to the late 60s that, that the Yellowstone Park was where bears died. It was the epicenter of, of mortality of grizzly bears. And now Yellowstone is like squeaky clean, and the visitors are mostly prepared, including the person that you saw carrying the bear spray. So the problems are not in Yellowstone Park. They're sort of the example for everywhere else. It's The bears are dying outside the park, you know, whether it's in livestock-related accidents or, you know, hunters or, you know, just accidents of various yeah. sorts. So it's really shifted, and the Park Service, I think, deserves um, a lot of praise for what they've done. Yes, yes. I, I commend the, the Park Service for adopting uh, policy, you know, and even things like having closures to hikers at certain times. You know, I think that, again, that's def, uh, making deferral to the needs of the bear rather than uh, recreationists. And, 
And there's plenty of places to go hiking or canoeing or whatever. You know, for example, some of the streams that feed in Yellowstone Park, you're not allowed to camp anywhere near them during June and early July when the cutthroat trout are spawning so that the bears right. don't have disturbance. And, you know, that's a perfectly good example of how to manage. You know, it doesn't say the whole park is off limits, but we know there are places that are, uh, important for bears at certain seasons, and um, it, it's appropriate to maybe put some restrictions on the human uh, access to those places. That gets back to the whole point of things like uh, mountain biking and pack rafting and right. ORVs and all that other stuff too. Right. Um, but 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 that there are there are even parts of Yellowstone uh, like the Washburn Range, which I believe is just like off limits all year round, for example. Mm-hmm. And it's good to have some places like that uh, in their mm-hmm. habitat. Yeah, absolutely. So, George, you've been a critic of a lot of conservation over the years, conservation practices, some non government groups. Uh, and you wrote recently about some of the adverse consequences that you're seeing of collaboration which is one of the techniques that some of the non-governmental groups uh, use. And to many, finding co- the idea of finding common ground is sort of a good thing, you know, sort of a compromise in the middle uh, through a collaboration. What, what do you see as the problem here, and, and what, would, what would a better approach be that you would recommend? Well, the, the pro- I call it the collaboration trap. And um, what happens, there's, there's a couple of things going on, but one thing that happens is, in trying to reach agreement with a, a wide array of interest groups, many of which have a financial interest, invested interest in the outcome, uh, there's a tendency to go to the lowest common denominator. So if you're having a discussion about, for example, uh, how much land should be protected as wilderness, and this is one of the areas that I'm most concerned about, uh, the, the way it tends to go is uh, the, the, the interest groups, and let's say the interest groups might be uh, uh, logging interests, grazing interests, say mountain bikes, uh, and so forth. The, what happens is all those different interests say, here's what we want, and, and there's a tendency on the part of, uh, of, of people working for uh, environmental groups to agree to say, okay, we'll drop that area, we'll drop that area, we'll drop that area, and then what's left is what nobody else is interested really in. In other words, it's the land that you're never going to log, it's the land that's too steep to mountain bike in, it's the land that has no grazing allotments in it or very little grazing and so forth. So what happens is uh, the uh, the wildlands get chopped up among these different interest groups, and on what is best for the land and for wildlife is the secondary thing in trying to appease the human uh, uh, interests in the slices to the pie, and um, and 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 that, and particularly for environmental groups, I I think what I'm paying people to do and and advocate for is for the wildlife and for the uh, wilderness, and mm-hmm. and we have so little wilderness and wildlands left that, um, to quote, um, paraphrasing David Brower, but he said something to the effect that, uh, you know, um, I, I know I'll have to compromise. I just want to be the last person standing in the room that does so. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I think that's a good mantra uh, that should be followed. Unfortunately, I don't see it followed there because what the other thing that happens is the organizations that hire people to participate in these collaborations uh, tend to be people already who are inclined to want to get along. They want to be, you know, uh, liked by the other members. I, I, I repeatedly see uh, letters to the paper or in newsletters saying, you know, well, isn't it great that I can go out with 
Joe Blow, who's, uh, you know, the head of the timber company, and have a beer with him, as if that's the most important thing that you get out of a collaboration, instead of saying, you know, I, uh, I, I stood up for and tried to protect, you know, 200,000 acres of wildlands. That doesn't even get mentioned most of the time, probably because they didn't protect 200,000 acres. Right. <laughs> and, and so uh, a good example of this is there's a collaboration that just came out uh, on the, um, the Gallatin Range, which, mm-hmm. Louisa, as you know, is just uh, yeah. uh, south of Bozeman and near uh, Livingston. And uh, the, the Forest Service um, has identified uh, about 230,000 acres that's roadless. Uh, of that 230, and I would say every one of those acres, people should be fighting practically for, you know, to die on their swords to protect those 230,000 acres. And, uh, and instead, this collaborative group that involves mountain bikers and ORVers and whoever else uh, has chopped off large areas of the Gallatin Range, calling them, you know, backcountry area or whatever. And they tend to be, in fact, the lower elevations, which are the most important wildlife habitat, including for bears. Uh, so you have an area called the Buffalo Horn uh, Drainage, which is, uh, just north of Yellowstone Park is a very important elk migration route. It's very important for grizzly bears. It's also a potential area where we might have wild bison. And that's been designated as a backcountry area to appease uh, mountain bikers. Uh, and uh, so those kinds of compromises, uh, and this happens before you even take something to um, uh, Congress. And uh, Congress is the one that should be the compromiser, you know, that has to work around these different agencies, I, I mean, uh, interest groups. And I believe that the wilderness advocates should stand firm and be advocates for what's best for wildlife. And the end, uh, yeah, you probably won't get the full amount that you're advocating for, but you might be surprised by the serendipitous way that uh, Congress works and, and things might come out better than you might uh, expect. And if it doesn't come out as well as you expected or hoped for, you, you, you at least made your best try. And uh, so what I see with the collaborations is that uh, you have a small group of people who are making decisions in many cases for, you know, America as a whole that has an undue influence. And uh, as I said, a lot of times uh, there's a, a real vested interest in there that where people who, who for example, <clears throat> in um, uh, collaborators that are where there's a lot of, timber involved, you'll find that you'll have foresters, you'll have timber company representatives, county commissioners who like logging, etc. And they have just an undue influence in the discussion. And, uh, and they set the parameters. Uh, I've been involved in a number of uh, collaboratives uh, tangentially. In other words, I, I can't participate in every meeting. That's another problem. They have right. meetings that go on for years and years and years. Uh, but but, for example, uh, if I'm one where there's uh, timber and interests involved, uh, it starts out the assumption there will be logging, and I want to bring it back to should there be logging here? That, mm-hmm. that should be the first question. And, and then you decide, you know, maybe it's not a place that should have any logging for a variety of reasons. Uh, but that isn't on the table. You have to agree right from the beginning that there's going to be logging. Uh, the same with, uh, I, I was briefly on one that was largely in rangelands, and it was the same thing. There will be grazing. Uh, there, there's no question to, about whether that's an appropriate use in that area or not. So you have the, the agenda already preset by the uh, participants that limits the discussion. And, um, and there also is a tendency with collaborations because they have a, 
set agenda in many cases uh, to ignore any contrary scientific evidence. Yeah, I'm bringing, bringing this back to Yellowstone, where you started in your discussion also mm-hmm. on the Gallatin Forest, where right. this collaborative has been looking at the disposition of, you know, 240,000 acres, which is a big chunk of wild country. And we've seen that process, as you said, dominated by mountain bikers and the like, and yet we have a situation with grizzly bears and mountain bikers where there's some real conflicts happening. I mean, mountain bikers tend to, you know, they're riding fast, they're riding quiet, and they're riding often through densely, you know, dense trees. And uh, we had a situation uh, two summers ago up near Glacier Park where a mountain biker, very experienced guy, just literally ran into a bear and it killed him instantly, um, raising questions about the extent to which mountain bikers are compatible, you know, with heavily used uh, grizzly bear areas. But on the Gallatin, too, we have a situation, as you mentioned earlier, where grizzly bears are dispersing from the core of the park because of the loss of key foods, whitebark pine seeds, and cutthroat trout in particular. So they're moving more and more to these peripheral areas, including the northern part of the Gallatin Range, some of these roadless areas you're talking about. And so we're seeing that bears need this extra, ha- this additional habitat to just make do, and uh, they're likely to find a conflict-ridden uh, landscape with mountain bikers. And the interests of any conflicts are certainly going to be decided in the favor of the mountain bikers. Uh, so I don't know. It's a difficult situation. Well, exactly, and this gets back to the point of, of, of access. Uh, mountain bike can travel over a lot more terrain quickly, and so places that might otherwise be remote become not so remote. And, and there's plenty of studies that show that uh, for bears in particular, if there's a lot of human activity in an area, they'll tend to avoid it often. And, uh, and, and so uh, it, 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 it incre- if that increases the human use in that area, uh, particularly in the more remote areas, then uh, that takes away from the refugia for the, for the bears. Uh, and, and a lot of times it's not just a single linear pathway, and that's what people have to understand. You know, it can be several miles on either side of a trail, a heavily used trail that might not be mm-hmm. uh, uh, utilized anymore, and that might be the best habitat in the whole drainage. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then the bears have to make this choice, sort of, should I be in this area where I'm, I'm tense all the time and I'm nervous and, uh, and, and, and potentially have a negative uh, conflict with humans, uh, or do I avoid it and, uh, and not utilize the best habitat? And so I, I see that, that we're making these decisions, particularly, you know, and this is another important point, Louisa, and I, I know you're aware of it, but that, uh, you know, we tend to think of what are the impacts on, on wildness and, uh, and, and wildlife and things of like uh, more resource extraction like logging or mining or oil and gas, all of which are significant. But, uh, you know, recreation can have its own impacts, too. And even mm-hmm. benign, and again, like I said, it's not done purposely, but it's benign recreational impacts. But uh, it can still have an influence on things like uh, bears and, and other animals that are trying to make a living out there. And, and I just think that we need to defer to them and to the degree possible. And, and, and the thing about wilderness in particular is, Wilderness and parks are like our gold standard. You know, any other designation, that's why this idea we're going to make it a backcountry area. Nobody knows what a backcountry area is. We don't know what the legal protections are for backcountry area uh, or whatever. And uh, whereas we know what wilderness access, we, we, we have a good, firm uh, grasp of, of how that will affect the landscape and the uses. And, um, 
And I think that's one of the reasons why people who are really concerned about uh, wildlife and wilderness should be putting uh, those interests uh, first and, and advocating for as much wilderness protection as we can get. Keep in mind that, that in the lower 40 states, we have about 2.7% of the landscape protected as wilderness. That's, that's nothing. You know, I mean, in other words, most of the landscape is open to if you want to ride your mountain bike or you want to, uh, you know, go uh, drive your ORV or, or uh, you know, or even use your bulldozer for recreation or whatever. <laughs> there's plenty of places you can do that, and there's very limited places where we're protecting the sort of uh, wilderness attributes and, and critical wildlife habitat. Yeah, what you're saying reminds me of a, of a story, um, a comment that uh, a well-known uh, biologist, a professor at Montana State University, a man named Peter Broussard, I asked him one time, how much, you know, how much land do you think grizzly bears really need? Uh, I was trying to get it, how much you know, we can compromise away, and he looked at me very seriously and said, every last square inch. Right, so, right, exactly. You know, because yes. we have so little. Yeah, and, and in fact, in recent years, uh, there's been a recognition that we, uh, you know, there's this goal of let's protect half of the earth. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, E.L. Wilson, a very famous biologist, right. wrote a book recently about that. But the World Congress on Protected Areas has come out endorsing that. There's, there's, there's been a recognition by various governments around the world that we need to have more protected areas. And, um, and I think that... Uh, uh, it's achievable too. It, you know, it may, we may never get to 50%, but it's good to have a goal. Just like you know, civil rights for everybody is doesn't exist, but we're 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 trying to make that a goal for everybody. And right. uh, and and it seems to me that um, uh, when you have an area, you know, the, the Gallatin Range, the Great Yellowstone ecosystem. Let's face it, it's not the nation's wood box. It's not the you know the best place for actually raising livestock, and it's not the uh, it's not a place that um, uh, you know is is appropriate for a lot of, uh, of sort of mechanical and motorized and fast kind of recreation. Whether we're talking about jet skis or or mountain bikes or, or ORVs or whatever, but what it does best is it's 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 wildness and it's habitat for wildlife, and and that should be what is recognized as the number one uh, priority for protecting and, uh, and, mm-hmm. and to uh, make all these other things, if they happen at all, be secondary to the primary purposes, which should be protecting the wildlife and the wildness. And because and, and we don't have this opportunity everyplace else. You know, you, you're not going to be able to do it in the middle of Kansas uh, with its wheat fields. You're not going to have uh, large roadless areas that are suitable for grizzly bears in, the, you know, in some place like Kentucky or something. Grizzly bears are never there. But the point being uh, that, that larger wildland protected areas don't exist in much of the nation. And what we have in the greater Yellowstone is, is a world-class wildland that uh, it's a temperate zone, and there are very few examples around the whole world like that. And and it should be that protecting that wildness and that world-class attribute should be the primary purpose of all the managing agencies and and what would hope would be the primary purposes of the environmental groups that are associated with that region, which sadly, to my view, uh, many are, have fallen behind on that goal and, and are not strongly articulating that. Yeah, so, George, you've got two children uh, who are now grown-ups, but they grew up tagging along on your various wilderness trips across the country, hither and yon. And um, what what kind of world, natural world, do you think your kids 
are going to inherit? Uh, well, I, I do think about that a lot. And, and, and what to me is a sad state of affairs is uh, the uh, uh, across the whole globe, not just my kids, but everybody's kids, are, uh, we're diminishing wildlands uh, at record pace. And, um, and, and then factors like global warming are going to accelerate changes that um, are likely to be, have a negative effect on a lot of wildlife and, and, and wildlands as well. And so, uh, to, for at least, uh, you know, uh, for my kids, I think that um, uh, when they look down the road, it, it'll be um, uh, a diminished landscape in the most, for the most part. Uh, that will have less wildness and less wildlife, and and um, unless uh, we change an attitude in, in how humans relate to the world and start considering other other non-human uh, elements out there and trying to uh, create space for them, and um, uh, you know I, I I sometimes see some trends towards that, but uh, then it seems like right now, like under our current administration backsliding and that backsliding can take decades to recover from. Um, yeah. and, and, and so the one thing that, that, you know, if you want to have an optimistic viewpoint, I can give you a couple of examples. Um, uh, I know you're familiar with this because you went to uh, college in New England, but um, uh, New England's a good example of passive restoration. Uh, a lot of people are unaware, for example, the state of Vermont was 85% logged over for farming, farmlands and, and for logging back in the 1800s. And then uh, a lot of that farmland was marginal, so it got abandoned, and we didn't have ways of saving the communities and the farms back then, so we didn't have, you know, uh, you know subsidized farm payments or anything. So, so those farms got abandoned. And then the forest came back, and, and uh, with the forest, a lot of species came back. It, it may surprise people that in, like, the 1880s and 90s, there was no deer in all of Vermont. There was no black bear. There was no beaver. Uh, there was no moose uh, and so forth. And, and if you go to Vermont today, uh, and this was all passive for the most part, uh, now about 85% of the state is forested. There are there's thousands of moose. There's uh, marten. There's fisher. There's of course beaver and bear and deer. And just last year, lynx were first seen. First lynx mm. in 100 years in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. Well, thank you very much, George. Uh, you're listening to George Worthner, and this is the Grizzly Times podcast. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.